an iMac uh, microphone. Oh, good man. Always the best way of doing it. All right, cool. So we are rolling in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Adela Marcy Unplugged. I'm your host, as always, Adela Marcy. And today we are joined by the one and only quiet legend, as I will call him from now on, Steve Dorman. Uh, go check out his site. His, he's a, one of the sponsors for the show today, which is stevedorman.com. Also sponsored by purelyhosting.com slash adel and also adelmarcy.com. Go check out the links that will be in the description and in the site description as well. Steve, I'm not going to go ahead and do any justice to your story. I'm going to get you to speak. But just before we jump into that, for everyone listening at home, uh, our last guest, Joss uh, Aguirre, who is a very dear friend of mine, interviewed Steve before me and then wouldn't shut up and wouldn't stop emailing me and messaging me saying, have you spoken to Steve yet? Have you got him on the show? Have you got him on the show? Have you got him on the show? So, Joss, if you're listening to this, I finally got Steve on the show. He's here. We're doing this show. And after doing a little bit of research into the man himself, I can tell you right now, it's an honor to have a veteran of your caliber on the show. So, Steve, take it away, my friend. That's it? I mean, I, oh, I feel like I've just been uh, let off on the tightrope, and now uh, <laughs> I have to try and walk. No, uh, not at all. I was like, could you give us just a little bit of a background about yourself? Like, we were just talking about it beforehand, because you had, sure. like, a paid newsletter. You had all this amazing stuff. I'm probably going to mute myself, because he's starting to get annoying. But please keep sure. Well, I have, you know, I, I hate talking about myself. So this is like the hardest thing in the world for me. But I have kind of an interesting background, both in direct marketing and especially direct response television and the entertainment industry. Uh, oh, wow. What a beautiful sky behind you. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. It's just lovely. Yeah. Nice building. Yeah, on top of the world there. Oh, right in the heart of London, right now. Nice. Yeah. But I sorry, love. sorry, I just com we just completely went off topic there because uh, I stood up for a second, ladies and gentlemen, to can't see the video. <laughs> I love, I love the skies when it's sunny there. Oh, it's the rare times, but yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um. So anyway, um, I invented a photographic product when I was in my 20s and direct marketed it through full-page ads in photographic magazines. And then went to UCLA Film School, which was my first love, and did a uh, short student film that Rod Serling did a cameo in. Wow. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Was, um, and he and I got to be quite good friends. I mean, he kind of took me under his wing. I was... 20 years old at the time and um and and i got a uh i got a telegram from him like two days before he passed away in the hospital wow. so so that was that was lovely having the opportunity to get to know him but um to make kind of a long story shorter oh when i graduated ucla film school i ended up writing one of the most popular episodes of happy days you didn't. You didn't write the one that had the jumping of the shark in it, did you? That wasn't you. No, that that one was a catastrophe. Um, no, mine was the uh, mine was the one where uh, Potsy saved Fonzie's life by pulling him out of a burning garage, which takes place off screen, and all he wants to do in return is to pal around with him. Wow. And uh, so the the famous scene in there is a roller skating scene where the Fonz cannot roller skate. I think I remember that episode. It's been a long time since I've seen Happy Days. I may have to look that up afterwards, after the show. It's been a while. Um, but then I ended up getting involved in the uh, infomercial industry in 1991 when uh, the new trade organization was just uh, forming. 
And um, I took my last $3,000 and my my Mac Plus, I think, and Laser Writer on my kitchen table and took three months and put a first newsletter together and um, cost me my last $3,000 and I sent it out to the new trade organization. All of a sudden, $35,000 came back and I went, oh, there could be a business here. So um, it, it just grew and grew and grew and I did it for 12 years and we sponsored conferences in uh, California. We created award shows and Penn and Teller were, uh, were at the award shows. Um, and, um, and then a relationship with Adweek magazines. We published a magazine with Adweek Brand Week and Media Week, which was their most successful uh, supplement ever and they purchased it from me. So um, for 12 years, I was like the unbiased news source of the industry. Um, and uh, everybody came to us for information. We discovered a lot of products and helped a lot of entrepreneurs get deals. And uh, the, uh, I don't know if you know it very well in England, but one of the biggest products that I had a hand in was a product called the Total Gym. Oh, no, I remember the Total Gym. We had, uh, what's his name, our good old friend Chuck Norris do the promotion work for it. I remember exactly. this. Well, they, there were uh, two entrepreneurs that came up with the product, and they brought it to one of our conferences, and we helped them get a deal. Wow, that's amazing. And, uh, it's the longest-running fitness product on television. I think they've done over $2 billion in sales, U.S. Yeah, that's incredible. See, I still remember, um, just kind of like a backtrack onto my own story uh, for a moment, I loved, watch well, I didn't really love as much as I kind of was forced to watch a lot of uh, infomercials as a child because uh, my dad loved watching them, and I have an older sister that used to beat the crap out of me in order to watch TV. So I came up with a system in my five-year-old brain that I'm going to sit down and watch whatever dad watches. The moment he gets up, I'm going to switch the channel, and he can't tell me out because I'm a little kid. Uh-huh. So for about two hours a day, six days a week for two years, I watched nothing but infomercials, including Billy Mays stuff mostly. Sure, yeah. And that's that's actually how I got my uh, feet wet to start selling when I was twelve. Wow. Yeah, because I've been. So t- tell me a little bit about you, though. Where oh. where has that led you? Well, outside I, of this wonderful podcast. <laughs> well, I uh, started writing direct response copy without knowing it from the age of twelve, and I wrote stories every day for my dad because uh, my teachers told me I was dyslexic. Uh, well, they didn't say I was dyslexic; they just said uh, your child has problems writing quickly. He's got an intelligent mind, but he can't write for shit. So mm-hmm. um, get him in. At the time, my dad recovered from his uh, from his back problem, and I was working at his uh, office. He said, "Come down to the office every day. Spend a couple of hours with me, just you know, writing whatever you feel like." Um, my parents subsequently separated for a while and then got back together. But by the, when they separated, I started doing martial arts instead because I wanted to be a professional fighter at the time. Um, and I never lost the habit of writing stories every day. I'd write them on the school bus because my school was an hour away by, uh, by school bus. So about an hour there, an hour back, I'd write a story in between. And I did this every single day. And what I didn't know was my dad used to take all my old stories. He told me this when I was 18, 19 years old after he sold the company. He used to take my stories and take them down to his copywriters. They would check for the grammar, they'd add a headline and a, and a call to action and mail out direct mail pieces with it. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, my dad did an extremely good number of sales with that. Like It was a really good business for him. And goes, so you sued him. You sued your dad because you never so. got royalty. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, when I asked about that, my option was, well, how about I give you an ass kicking instead? I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take no, no royalties. Zero percent's fine for me. <laughs> I'll just, wow. um, yeah, and I started uh, writing direct response sales copy at the age of 18. Um, 
by the time this show airs, my birthday would have passed. But my birthday's on the 30th of September, and I'll be turning 27 on the 1st of October. will mark my 15th year as a direct response copywriter. So, wow. yeah, technically a veteran without being there. But um, a lot of my own stuff is just like the podcast, uh, a few products I've created, and mostly I like working with companies by moving towards working with uh, people aged 18 to 35, like entrepreneurs and small businesses, to yeah. help them kind of get the idea of growing. I mean, honestly, this, this entire podcast, the way it came about, was I got tired of listening to the same 10 questions being asked on every single show. And you can almost hear it to every single guest. It'd start off really exciting, and then by the fifth or sixth question, the guests would start to dull, and you'd, you could hear them like their eyes would be glazing over. They're on autopilot. So I right. thought, what's one of the best ways to get a real podcast going? Well, you have a real conversation with someone as if you met them in a cafe mm-hmm. uh, or a coffee shop, and someone recorded it. I'm like, well, that's how I'm going to write my podcast from now on. When I come on here, none of this is scripted. Whatever happens, happens, and I don't edit. I mean, we can make mistakes, and I'm still going to make. I'm going to keep them in there. That's great. Yeah, that's great. So There's a lot to be said for this uh, method. <laughs> oh, it could get me killed one day, but hey, it's still all good and laughs, right? But you've got a good view, so yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's from a good place the way I look at it. But kind of jumping back to you because I've done my piece, and my audience uh, thankfully knows quite a bit about me. Uh, we're going to jump into like me, I, I want to ask you a follow-up question. Yeah, though. go for it. Has the, has the writing? Uh, as far as the length of time it takes, you've gotten easier as you've gotten older and you've practiced so much. It's gone the other way around. It takes me longer now to write direct response pieces than it used to. Really? Um, like before, I used to write direct response pieces in about two hours. I can knock out a sales letter in two hours. Um, now what I do is I usually give my clients a time of about four to five weeks, maybe six weeks, depending. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed, because uh, I've done a lot of different things in my life. Uh, I did stand-up comedy. I still do. Um, I used to be a voice actor. I love doing impersonations. Just um, So the way I write that makes me really unique in my ability is I can take anyone's voice and imitate that voice over a set period of time that I end up speaking like them. I end up talking like them. I end up writing like them. I embody who they are for that six-week period. Um, and it takes about four weeks of me just doing that constantly or three weeks depending. And then I drop right into the writing. It takes me about three days to write the entire direct mail piece. But for the entire time prior to that, I'm just sat there listening to the audios back and forth again, listening to the questions we spoke about, what we got to, and then I know how to sell them perfectly. So that's, that's the way I do it. But it does, it takes me more time now than it used to, but the results have got better. So you take one after the other. You reminded me of a. You reminded me of an amazing story. Go for it. So, That's okay. story. So, this uh, when I was in college, I was very heavily into college radio. Ooh, good. So I, I had my own radio show over at UCLA, and at that time, because it was in the seventies, uh, the record companies really treasured college radio because it was a way they could break a lot of records. So they used to devote a big promotional budget to them. And in one instance, they paid for me to go on tour for two days with Deep Purple and Rod Stewart. Oh, shit. That's amazing. So um, I got and I got to know the guys pretty well and Deep Purple especially. So I got to ride in Los Angeles in their limo to the concert be backstage with them for all the craziness. And at that time, it was pre-AIDS. It was crazy backstage. (laughs) Uh, I can't tell you 
the lead guitarist uh, jumped into the shower. I cannot tell you how many nude women jumped into the shower with him. <laughs> but at the end of the two days uh, of hanging around with these guys, I went home and without realizing it, I started talking like this. And I just picked it up naturally and I didn't even realize what I was doing. Which So your story reminded me of that. It's scary. We're like, uh, humans do this quite often. I found the most adaptive people can adapt to, uh, like, if you speak to someone for a short period of time, for a long period of time, you almost start emulating their voice. Like, there's a really good friend of mine, Patrick. I can't speak to him for more than five to ten minutes at a time because he's Irish. And when I start talking to him, the Irish accent starts coming out and I start speaking like this and everyone goes, where the fuck are you from? I'm like, I'm from Ireland. From Dublin. That's what I do. My mom raised me there. That's what happened. Yeah. But it's, it's a lot of fun just doing that to mess with people, especially when you order pizza. I will tell you, if anyone listening to this, order pizza just using different accents. It, it messes with them, and sometimes you get a really good entertaining laugh out of it with them as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> cool. I'll try that. Uh, it's so much uh-huh. fun. So kind of diving into this, because there was something I did want to ask you. So you went on tour with like Deep Purple and Rod Stewart, so you almost kind of had a career in media from the get-go. Yeah, I mean, it was something that I was really, really interested in. And I actually got into UCLA um, in their film department, which was impossible to get into. Um, They only let something like a total of about 20, 25 people in per year, of which only six of them came from outside the school. So if you were going to another school and trying to transfer in and... um, I ended up taking an extension acting class while I was going to uh, a junior college. And the professor was so impressed with me, he made a special plea that I got into the uh, film school. So that's how I got in. Wow. So, yeah. And I always loved radio. And when I was, when I was uh, really little, I was a ventriloquist. So I, have, I performed so at kindergarten at, their, uh, at the kindergarten graduation. Can you still do it? Uh, maybe with a little bit of practice. I still have my old dummy upstairs, but uh, this is a video I will pay to see one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still have some video from my uh, not video. It was uh, eight millimeter film. My my parents took of me at the uh, at the kindergarten graduation of holding up the he, the puppet is dressed in a suit, and so was I at six years old. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So kind of like diving into this, I was going through um, just like the amount of work that you guys did. What would you say would be the biggest takeaway that you got from working with the guys from Total Gym? I mean, it's such a successful ad campaign and uh, infomercial. What are some of the things that you picked up from there um, and that you can share, I hope? Well, let me, let, me, let me back up a little bit more because the Total Gym, I was involved in them. Uh, I, I found the product. Uh, we had a, a seminar called a sell your product on television treasure hunt where we took full page ads out in the, uh, in, uh, newspapers like USA today, uh, wall street journal and, um, said, if you have a product that would work on television, that would meet these criteria, talked about how much markup it has to have. If it solves a problem that nothing else is solving, uh, a whole array of things, what a, a good TV product is then you should come to the conference. And we were only looking for 50 
companies or unique products. And we always had trouble finding 50. Um, usually, uh, we turn away most of them. Oh, definitely turn away most of them. But we'd end up with like 35 maybe mm-hmm. that we thought were interesting. And all the major players in the industry, all, all the major uh, infomercial companies, they agreed to participate. They took suites out at the hotel. And we set up, pre-set up half hour one-on-one meetings so that they could pitch their product themselves. And in the morning, we had meetings with attorneys, with uh, talent, uh, to educate them on how the industry works and what typical deals are so they know what they're getting themselves into. So I was responsible basically for finding their product, advising them who they should make the deal with when they came to me, when they got interest, and all of that. But I, um, I ended up doing... A couple of my, uh, I I got the urge to do my own infomercial in 1993, and because I was the unbiased news source in the industry, I um, I couldn't compete with people because nobody would subscribe to a newsletter that was written by a competitor. So I had to come up with something that was unique that nobody in their right mind would do. So I had an idea for how to sell a woman's perfume on television. And nobody thought you could sell a woman's perfume on television without a woman being able to smell it. Yeah. So I went to the top fragrance house in the world um, that had the top three of the 10 fragrances currently in existence. And I said, guys, I know exactly how I want to sell this on television, but this is what it's got to do. It's women have to love it the very first time they smell it or we're going to get flooded with returns and guys have to find it incredibly sexy. I mean, really so sexy that when they smell it, they actually have a reaction to it that goes on their face. And they said, nobody's ever asked us to do that before. And I said, I would think everybody would be asking you to do this. And uh, they said, no, that's not how the industry works. And, and, you know, at this point, the lesson was it's a very, very good thing to be an outsider because you see things with a childlike point of view that you would never see if you were entrenched in it. So nobody's ever asked them, to, was a 50-year-old company, to do this before. They didn't know if they could do it. And it took a year and a half, and I think it was like 637 different trial and error experiments until they finally came up with fragrance that met both of those criteria. And I kept having to veer them away from where they were going. They kept trying to recreate an existing popular fragrance, but that wasn't the way to go. So there were a lot of false starts. And the infomercial was three beautiful women, one in Los Angeles, one in New York, and one in Minneapolis. And Minneapolis was beautiful because they had these gorgeous lakes and it was the end of summer and people are rollerblading around the lakes and they have a bandstand. I mean, it looked like a Twilight Zone episode as to what heaven would look like. Um, it was just beautiful. And um, and then New York, we did the opening of the opera at Lincoln Center. We did Wall Street at lunchtime and those guys are animals. We did <laughs> Fifth Avenue. We did Central Park. And Los Angeles, we did... Um, um, Sunset Boulevard, Century City. 
And these models, these beautiful models, would just go up to strangers, both men and women, and say, excuse me, would you mind smelling me? And that's it. The whole show was a combination of getting people's reactions smelling this fragrance. And the reactions were incredible, and they were real. There was nothing edited out. It was just one reaction after another. And people went crazy, both men and women, for the fragrance. I have so, to ask, what was the fragrance called? Curiosity. Is that still available today or no? No. And, and you know, there's a funny story about that, too, because uh, I learned a very, very hard lesson about that, which is that, um, you know, ideally you want a product that people are going to reorder often because that's how you build a business. Perfume will sit on a, woman, a woman's counter for 20 years. I mean, they go through, they put just a little bit on at a time. So, I mean, we haven't manufactured that since the end of the 90s. And I'm not exaggerating. Every two months, I get an email from somebody that says, oh, my God, I found you. I just ran out of the fragrance. Where can I get some more? It's my, fragrant, my favorite fragrance. I wear it every day. And I have to tell them, um, I'm sorry, I can't. And since I wasn't manufacturing anymore using the name, Here's another interesting story. Out of the blue, I got a notification from a, supposedly an individual on the East Coast that he had an idea of what he wanted to do with the name, and he wanted to buy the name from me. And uh, he assured me he was an entrepreneur, and this was not a big company and everything. And I thought about it, and I agreed to sell him the, sell him the name. Um, well, it turned out he was a stooge. And he was doing this for the fragrance company that was bringing out Britney Spears' new fragrance, Curious. Wow. So he, they knew they'd get sued if somebody had a fragrance called Curiosity that was grandfathered in. They had to buy the name to come out with her Curious perfume. Wow. I hope that was a good payday, though. It could have been better if I had known what it was, but it wasn't shabby. Yeah. It's a good thing. What was the uh, man? I really want to find out what this fragrance, the, the original Curious fragrance, was because, like, just that I want to smell it just so I can see what's up. Because it really is beautiful. We came out with a men's fragrance, and uh, the men's fragrance was just a variation, more of a, a little bit more manly. And um, you know, it's it's the only fragrance that literally. Like my dad would wear, he'd be in an elevator, he'd get compliments. He'd go, oh my God, what's that? What are you wearing? I mean, it really did work. It's kind of an amazing thing. I have the last bottle of the pure essential oil in my refrigerator that I've had for 20 years. Wow. I yeah. always want to ask you what that is. So I can be like, okay, so uh, Operation Everyone, let's break into Steve's house. I guess I'm kidding. But it's just so cool. Wow. So I learned a lot about that. Um, I, you know, it's really important to have the – so it, I have a really interesting background in the sense that I was the unbiased news source for 12 years. I probably watched and reviewed maybe 15,000 infomercials over the 12 years. I mean, just a huge amount. And the bottom line is when you review them, as you, uh, I think, have found out yourself – it doesn't matter what the production value is. It doesn't matter how sleazy it is. It doesn't matter how um, um, whether 
you know, they spend millions of dollars on the production and it's the glossiest thing you've ever seen. The only thing that matters when you're reviewing an infomercial is if your hand mechanically starts reaching for the phone. Yep. Yep. That's, that's it. That's the way I look at it with great copy. Like a lot of people ask me, like, what makes great copy? And I can tell you, I'm, everyone, uh, if you've not heard me speak about this before, uh, I'm surprised because I talk about it all the time. It's structure. That is the big secret for me in sales copy. It's not so much the words you use, and there are certain words you want to avoid, like the black plague, but it's structure. Because if you have a misstructured sales piece, even if you're doing infomercials, it isn't going to sell very well. Right. And um, a lot of people fail to see that. And that's something I actually believe in not picked it up from infomercials. Because um, going back to the Total Gym, because I do remember seeing that infomercial constantly during my teens. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're a, a guy that's always trying to get the natural edge on everyone and trying to work out and stuff like that, you want to see what's up. And I actually used to watch the natural, um, or the Total Gym uh, infomercials just for the fun of it. Because it always, like, if for some reason it just drew me in, I always liked seeing it. They'll do the demonstration of what it was. They'll give you all this like educational stuff that you need to understand before it, and then they would ask you to buy. And even though I wasn't old enough to actually have a credit card to order, I would completely plead with my dad, like, can we get this? Can we get this? And my dad would be like, ah, maybe you're at the gym. You can use all the stuff over there. We'll see what's up. In the end, my gym actually ordered one because I kept <laughs> nagging them into it. I was like, could, could we just get one in? They're like, why? I was like, I'll show you how to use it. It's fine. But... It's it's incredible. Um, and what what was your opinion when you finally got on one and used it? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. It was uh, it was a really good way of me using uh, using it for my training. Of course, I used it slightly different than its purpose um, in the sense of uh, I used it to increase the strength of my hip flexors. Because mm. you know how you have the pull down bar. Yeah. Uh, what I used to do was I attach the pull down bar, I'd get something else to attach around my ankle. And I'd pull down with my ankle, try and keep my feet together as the weight was trying to lift my foot back up. And I'd slowly lift it back up to mm -hmm. keep trying to control the hip, hip flexor and the, um, the strength of my leg. So I can always do that. And it was a really, really good way of me uh, training my body to do it that way. But it was just such a brilliant piece of equipment. I kind of want to get one now, but I'm like, my apartment's not big enough to have one in here. Well, they have, um, they originally started with professional units before they came out with the consumer one. So they were much bigger and they had a lot more uh, elevation. And uh, they were using them in physical rehab uh, offices. Yeah. And then it was their idea to come out with something that folded up that you could do in your home. Yeah. And uh, there were some big Hollywood trainers that utilized them because you ended up, if you used them properly, you ended up getting the body of a uh, of uh, a dancer, pretty much, rather than a weightlifter. Yeah, which yeah. is far more powerful for an everyday movement. Yeah. Yeah, because weightlifters, unfortunately, just too bulky. Yeah. Especially nowadays. I mean, if you go back to people like uh, even Arnie, like Schwarzenegger, when he was in his, uh, in his prime, mm -hmm. he was a big guy, but he still had the waist and core strength of a, of a smaller man. Like yeah. it, was, it was very, very chiseled, but it was very, very like in proportion. It wasn't sticking out. Yes. Uh, which I kind of find strange, but then again, that that alludes to a whole different case of uh, what was it substance abuse that a lot of people don't know about the weightlifting world. Um, but kind of like jumping right into the advertising side of stuff because that is incredible that you actually managed to get in, even for curiosity. That is such an amazing product. Would you say what was the launch pad for you? 
because I remember you saying that you had the uh, product, you were down to your last three grand, you mailed it out, and then $35,000 came back in. Right. What well, this was, um, um, this, was, this was in 93, so this was uh, two years after I had started the newsletter. So I used my own money and uh, produced the infomercial and created the perfume, and I did it very, very lean. I mean, I had one person working for me at that point, so it was just the two of us. And uh, I did the whole 30-minute show and the perfume for around $125,000 US. That is actually not bad for that time period. Oh, no, no, not at all. And and when you consider that we, where we shot, that we were all over the US shooting, um, and had a beautiful graphics package for it. It was really, really nicely done. Um, and I ran the media out of my own pocket. The media is where it gets expensive because a successful uh, infomercial in the U.S. at least, you can, uh, you can spend anywhere from uh, $50,000 a week all the way up to a million and a half dollars a week on media costs. Yep. So you, you need... You need somebody with uh, cash flow. So I ended up uh, forming an alliance with a, uh, a major infomercial company who then uh, used their media department to run it. That's really good. I mean, one of the things, who was it? I think it was either you or was it Jay? I can't remember which one it was. I think it might have been you that said that your biggest cost is, is the media. Media would be your biggest cost. If you can make even a 10% reduction on the cost, it could massively impact what your bottom line is when you actually run uh, media ads. Is that you or was that Jane? I can't remember. I don't know, but the you know the tricky thing the tricky thing is when you when you test the media of uh, a show. Um, you know you can't really target market where you run an infomercial. It's very different than you know, for example, marketing online. Because uh, marketing online, you can really hone who your audience is. Um, with an infomercial, it's all based on what your return is. Yep. So you'll start out initially testing uh, metropolitan markets, major cities versus rural, and day and night, and weekday and weekend. And you'll see if there are any pockets that perform better. And um, the media buyers all have these accumulated databases of every, every uh, offer that they've run on every station in the U.S. And they know what their best stations are. And that's where they'll uh, go towards. They'll give it the best shot they possibly can. But you'll find that uh, even when you're, when you're in a big successful campaign and running a million dollars a week, that... You, 50 to 60% of your stations are the ones that are generating money and the other 40% are losing money. So, and you can't really hone it much closer than that. Yeah. So I'll, there are a lot of infomercial campaigns that their success takes place on the back end that you never see where they might offer you an upsell, one or two upsells, and it's the upsells that they're, is really the difference between whether they're profitable or not. Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing with marketing today. Like a lot of people think, um, yes, we have, oh, this is a really big thing that um, I hope everyone listening truly understands because it's something that I'm really kind of getting more honed in for myself. You got to have some gratitude for the internet right now because of how 
how how much easier it is it is for us as media buyers to get what we want versus someone like yourself who had to go through the entire trouble of going okay now we need to make sure this is profitable we need to just we have these metrics available to us and that's it today we can target by geographical location sex age marital status children no children um, relative income FICA score or if you're in the UK you experience credit score you can do all of this out right before you run the ad you don't have to survey anybody it's right there ready for you to go and out there to put money into mm -hmm. the only the only real objection I guess people have today well the only question I really have for you right now is do you still believe that direct uh, what was it infomercial direct response the way it was all written back then do you reckon that could still work today if you use the internet as a medium? Oh, definitely. Now, there, there were, um, when I finally uh, stopped the newsletter, I got involved with a company uh, in Connecticut, on the east coast of, New of, uh, of the United States, that was a health publisher. Um, they had several health newsletters that were called Bottom Line Health. And... Um, they had these large books that were four to five hundred pages that were compilation of some of their editorial. And they wanted to get into the infomercial business. And they used to be subscribers to my newsletter. So the senior vice president, when they were thinking about it, called me. They had a lowball offer from a company in Florida. And usually every offer you get from Florida is a lowball offer. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Someday that whole state is going to end up underwater and the only thing that is going to be left is the very top of the Matterhorn. <laughs> yeah, that would not surprise me. Just no. With, just with the way that place is going. It's, uh, what was it called? All my friends in the UK, the ones that have come over from the US go, every time I hear a story about something crazy happening in the US, my first thought is, is it Florida? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of how we feel here too. Um, so I, uh, so the, so anyway, uh, we ended up partnering to do a whole series of infomercials for these health books. And um, it was really, so I produced, I wrote or co-wrote, I directed the series of health book infomercials that over the course of five years uh, grossed $300 million. And that was on a $39.95 sale for the book no back end. No back end. So um, it was pretty extraordinary. It was pretty extraordinary. And I learned so much being in the trenches and trying different things. Um, and I took a lot of what I've learned and I put it into a uh, book um, of how you can incorporate what I've learned uh, through television, through the 25 years in television into online What's and it's called? a free uh it's called online gold and it's a free download all of our uh, our our fellow collaborators in the marketing medium can go down and instantly download this book at stevedwarman.com at steve d w o r m a n.com yeah i mean yeah. one thing i really liked about this cuz i actually did do that um, I've read it through. Guys, anyone listen to this, it is a brilliant book. Um, so much stuff that's in there that I'm going to be incorporating into my, new, into my new funnel that's coming out for one of my businesses. 
But dude, that's incredible. And of course, now I have to ask you my favorite two questions they have on okay. the show. Um, the first question is, and especially someone that's been in business for as long as you have, you've uh, you've probably gone through this. How did you get yourself back up every time you were knocked down, like, and regain your confidence? Because there are some people I know, like myself, we get a really hard knock. It knocks our confidence, and we have to claw our way back. What was the way that you did it? Like, how did you get back? Boy, that is such a pertinent question to me um, because it's not easy. And the older that you get, the harder I think it becomes. I mean, I think as you age, the hardest thing is maintaining your curiosity, maintaining your childlike wonder, and not being afraid to fall again. So um, I'll tell you a story because it's, it's really pertinent to what you're asking. Um, when I, uh, so I, I was more successful than I'd ever been with this whole series of infomercials. And then 2008 happened with, uh, nine 11 and just the bottom dropped out of everything here in the United States. Wait, 2008 as in the market crash or the, crash. oh, yeah. crash. Yeah. So the market crash happened. Nobody was buying anything off television. Everybody was worried that they were going to be able to pay their mortgage, their rent. So nobody cared about anything on TV anymore. Um, so it was a scary time. So we went from, you know, 50 to $75 million in sales to all of a sudden nothing. Nothing was working anymore. So, you know, and then you blame yourself, even though everybody's experience is the same thing. Oh, if I had done it better. Um, so it's, it's a very, very hard emotional thing. So at that point in my life, I said, um, I said, okay, well, I've got a little bit of money saved. I want to try some different things because my whole thing in life is I love creating things that didn't exist before. I just, I love doing that. Um, I, and, and so I went through a whole, whole series of things. I created, uh, an iPhone app called real weather girls. That was the first series of reality shows on the iPhone on a daily basis. We had 12 girls from London to Honolulu who gave us a slice, slice of their life every day, dating, job interviews, washing their hair, um, getting ready for a date, going on the date. And then you had the weather for any place in the world that you wanted to. It was a great weather app. We had to contract with the weather service. And we got 66,000 downloads in a matter of a week and a half. But the cost of producing it was so expensive. I had to have two full-time editors here because it was like we were producing 35, 40 minutes of content a day plus 12 women, and plus the streaming cost, plus the weather cost. So I learned a lot about the app world, but it wasn't profitable. But it was creatively successful. Yeah. Um, and then I had an idea for a long time for a cosmetic company that was really a brilliant idea, and I was in discussions with L'Oreal about it uh, for a long time, and they almost went for it, but... They didn't, so I decided to do it myself with a partner. And that was five years putting my entire um, life savings, basically, into the company. 
Um, seeing it do really well, I mean, we were in major magazines as one of the best beauty websites online. We hit major television shows, but we were underfinanced. It was going to take multi-millions of dollars to really launch this. So I walked away from the company last year. My partner took it over and she's still trying to raise some money. But I realized I went through a depression over it. I mean, it was five years and all this money and it was really hard and it's still a great idea. But um, so, yeah, I had to reinvent myself all over again. And, um, you know, you go through some days where you go, oh, my God, maybe I need to get a job at McDonald's. Yep, been there. I've had yeah. those. I uh, I only recently just came out of one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had about six weeks worth of just waking up and going, "What the hell am I doing with my life?" Mm-hmm. I have no idea where it came from, but it just hits you like right in the nuts, and you're like, mm, "Gotta gotta keep it keep it going." Yeah. But sorry to interrupt that, but it's so it's so true. You yeah. Know, you, you go through that. So it was hard, and I have a three and a half year old son. And, um, and, you know, and a wife and, you know, it causes a lot of stress because not only was there no money coming in for five years there, all of it was going out. Yeah. So, um, you know, in my case, I sat down and I created this book, which I'm just giving away to kind of get in touch with my essence and everything I know. And, um, you know, kind of reaffirm um, being able to give back um, some of the things that I've learned that I think are really invaluable. And then the next thing, which I, you know, I haven't really discussed with anybody is um, in a week from Tuesday, I'm actually launching an online class called Mind Capture. And I went back, I did that soul searching and I realized so much of my success, so much what I've learned came as a result of this conference that I put together in 1997 called Mind Capture. And um, it was one of the most amazing three-day things that I'd ever been to. Um, I don't know if you know the name Dr. Robert Cialdini. Yep, the grandfather influence. Right. So, um, so Bob has gotten to be a, a very, very good friend. And Bob came and he spoke for an entire day. If I remember correctly here, you're the only man that's ever done that. This guy, yeah. Bob, to actually speak at another event. No, he speaks at, he speaks at, at corporations. Yeah. He speaks at corporations. But he spoke for me about three different times. But this was the big one. This He spoke for an entire day, which he hasn't done in decades. And... What was so fascinating about that is um, he, if, if you don't know who Dr. Robert Cialdini is, he has a brand new book out, by the way, called Persuasion. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But Influence is the book that you really want to start with. And, um, and so Bob found himself, he's a social psychologist, and found himself in the role of being a sucker. Anytime anybody came to his door to sell him anything, He'd feel compelled to buy whatever it is and not understand why he felt compelled to do it. So again, having those childlike eyes, he said, I'm going to take two years off from teaching and I'm going to 
dive into this. And he uh, took all sorts of jobs of people that have influence. He became an insurance salesman, car salesman, a waiter, um, all sorts of things of people that are selling you something. And what he discovered was the top people in the field, <laughs> they all used very, very similar methods. They discovered things that really worked and they stuck to it. So he was able to systematize it into six um, main things that uh, people can use to influence other people. So what was amazing about this event was that um, Bob <laughs> laid everything out and then there were, there were 267 people that flew in from around the world and they had lots of questions for him and he answered every question. And it's so rare that you actually get to hear all of the answers to these questions that you would probably have yourself. Yep. So what made this even more special though, was that we had two other main speakers after Bob. One of them was Joe Girard. Now Joe Girard is in the Guinness book of world records as having sold more automobiles than anybody in history. He sold more automobiles than most dealerships single-handedly. And these weren't corporate deals. These were one deal at a time. And, and Joe created a whole system for himself as to what made him so successful. And you, he shared it with us in depth, uh, more depth than he's ever shared it before. I mean, he has some books out but he didn't go into the detail like he did at the seminar. But what was mind-blowing was, with the background we got from Dr. Cialdini, we now were able to see exactly the mechanism that Joe was using. So we could see how he applied Cialdini's research and how it was paying off for him. So it was, it was mind-blowing. And then we had Joe Sugarman, who is one of the most prominent uh, direct marketing copywriters and uh, who I, I, I can call a good friend. I met Joe when I was 23 years old. So I've known him for a long time. I've known Joe for like 30 years. Hold on and I hope you don't mind me interrupting. Kat. You've known Joe since you were 23. Yeah. That's incredible. Because when you were talking about how you'd got your newsletter out there in the Wall Street Journal, my brain was going, I hope this man knows Joe Sugarman because Joe and his blue block of sunglasses and I've been trying to get Joe back on this podcast because unfortunately we did a podcast a really long time ago and he's such a great guy. Uh, hailed, in my opinion, one of the few men that stopped me ever quitting from because mm -hmm. uh, when I was 21, I almost quit everything I was doing. Wow. Um, and it was because of a jealousy that I had over someone else. And I spoke to Joe about it and Joe said, hey, listen, you're going to fail more times than you're going to win. But as you get older, if you keep at it, you'll start winning more than you'll fail. I was like, wow, that's amazing. I've been trying to get Joe back on the podcast because we did a podcast together, but unfortunately my microphone at the time and my computer melded yeah. our voices together so we were speaking over each other when the final product came out. Uh, like, I'm, happy, uh, I'm happy off air to give you his personal email address. Please, if you could, just as an introduction to get him back on the show because uh, that man, I owe him so much. It's incredible. Well, a lot of people do. I mean, uh, he's... Uh, you know, he, he's remarkable. And, and way back then, he was doing uh, $3,000 seminars teaching what he learned. 
Um, but in this instance, Joe uh, followed specific things on influence. And then you could again see he's applying Cialdini's research in entirely different ways. And neither one of these guys realized what they were doing. They just found what worked. So it was the most mind-blowing thing. And anytime I start a new campaign, I created a transcript that's almost 300 pages of everything at the seminar and uh, of Mind Capture One. So in this course I created, um, I call it Mind Capture Two. You get the entire transcript from Mind Capture One that alone is worth a hundred times what anybody would pay for it. And um, then I put together six modules of everything I've learned and things that I've not talked about before that I discovered in like millions of dollars worth of television testing. And, uh, and then we even have uh, a friend of mine who is the former creative director of Prada. Wow. Yeah. And, and he, uh, uh, Yoakam, um, and he left Prada, moved to Hawaii, and started his own uh, online coffee business, where he became a coffee farmer, and he launched his own coffee business. And what he did was he created three different brands of coffee from his farm. And in this hour interview I do with him, he talks about the three different brands that he created. Two of the three brands didn't work. Wow. One is a huge success. He can't even keep the copy in stock. So, again, he's never revealed this information anywhere. He didn't want his competitors to find out, but he shares it with us, and it's part of the course. So if anybody wants to download my free book um, at stevedwarman.com, they'll get on our list, and they'll get notified next week when we launch the uh, – course and and I even have reduced it because it's it might be the only time I offer it uh, by 25 percent so wow. it's very affordable for what you get and the information's invaluable that's amazing uh, guys go check out everything that Steve has discussed today I mean there's always there's one more question I always usually ask at the end of the show but you've already answered that repeatedly so there's no point even me asking. Guys, go ahead, check out everything Steve does. Follow him online. Um, get on his mailing list. And yeah, dude, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I love the conversation. I'm glad that you do. Um, I hopefully will get you back on the show another time. I love that. Take care. Bye. You too.